0: Hello and welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. So we're in the yoga room again today because it's having a good old rain outside so we're not walking around in the hills with the sheep and the birds like we normally do. (laughs) So this is part two of the series that we're doing where we're having a conversation about a possible economic collapse that could be coming up in the UK and beyond. So in the first part we were talking about the history. We were just going over different kinds of economic collapses and how they impacted on the UK and the different factors which triggered them off. And we also recognised that each economic collapse is uh, very unique and has unique factors which bring them about, and also um, unique factors that also are required to fix the problem. Uh, And we also recognise that it is very difficult to come up with a hard and fast definition of what economic collapse is, because they are all so different and so unique. So we were dealing with the history of economic collapse in the last one. So this, this time we want to deal with present day. So we started off when we were thinking about this podcast by writing down all the crises which are going on in mm-hmm. the UK at the moment. Yeah. And it turned out to be a very long list. Yeah. <laughs> very long. and uh, These are just the ones that we know about, and not the ones that we know are probably going to be coming up soon. So first of all, let's talk about how we're going to analyse this big long list that we've got sitting here in front of us.
1: Okay. Uh, When we, we were brainstorming this, and that's kind of been going on actually for ages really, isn't it? You know, for years, in fact, in some ways, you know. Um, but certainly, it's certainly it's, been
0: a long conversation, and we've we've been at this for weeks actually. It, it's like on our mo- it's on
1: our mind quite a bit at the moment. Uh, anyway, what what transpired was that the the crises that we can see that are right in fr- in front of your face at the moment, so clustered into into groups, and those groups actually do chime very closely with uh, the way in which we've been looking at current affairs and politics and catastrophes and crises and promises uh, ever since we've been d- doing current affairs podcasts and p- politics podcasts, which is now t- quite a few years. And, th- and that is to, to try and recognise that the world is movement, just getting right down to the nitty-gritty, you know, good Buddhist, Daoist, Heraclitian, Whiteheadian uh, process way of looking at the world, we see things as constantly on the move. We take that as a, a, a an underpinning metaphysics, it's very hard to push push aside. <laughs> so it, it, you need to sort of get, be getting into systems thinking uh, and uh, to recognising what the systems are. And, and one of the big, broad, brushstroke pictures we've used is to say that there's the ecosphere, the world. Some people call it nature even though it's a fairly problematic term, actually. But, you know, just the world, the oceans, the weather, the, the, the atmosphere, the climate, the creatures, the metabolic processes, the circulation of, of gases and elements and photosynthesis and evolution... And habitat balance and the uh, the whole the whole, ecosphere is the best word I've got for that. You know, and that contains everything. And without it, we're dead. If that collapses, we all die. The world dies. Sort of embedded in that, and, and in in a very uh, intimate relationship with it, is another system which we we call society. And really, that consists of the economy. Because it's, it's the economy is the place where we interact with the ecosphere. we extract minerals, we use, use the air, you know for instance, you know you use the oxygen from the air in a smelting process to make iron with which to build your railways and your buildings and your skyscrapers and your cars and all the rest of it. and also the the waste of our economic processes goes back in into nature. I mean, on the one level, uh, you know, our, our uh, piss and shit, if I can put it in just Lyman's <laughs> terms, and the, the breath that we breathe out and the breath that we take in, all of this is metabolism with nature. It's Marxist, brilliant phrase. Marx. He talks about our metabolism with nature. And that's precisely what it is. It's, me- it's metabolic. It's an exchange all the way through. And, of course, you know, our waste products, and the waste products of our industries go into nature, and we extract from nature. And we dump into night. So there's this whole kind of complete en- enmeshment and entanglement between these, these separate systems. I mean, really, it's one big system with subsystems, a bit like your body. You've got your circulatory system. You've got your, you've got your nervous system. You've got your digestive system. <laughs> you've got your excretory systems and, and, and all that. And they all work together. You know, they're all, they're all like a human body. But at the same time, they belong to the whole, but they have a kind of an existence of their own. And all you, you think like this for analytic purposes, you know, it's, it's it's kind of pragmatic where you draw the lines in these systems. It, it's just a way of getting a handle on what's going on. And then, again, embedded again, is, is what I, always, I call like the, the cultural sphere. I mean, Marxists would call it the superstructure. I call it this just culture. And that that includes everything that that happens in, in, in the circulation of our ideas, our conversations, our narratives, our beliefs, our religions, our scientific understandings, and the whole kind of public conversation that goes through media, through Netflix, through YouTube, through newspapers, through television channels, through conversations in the pub, through the way children are reared, through education, you know, the symbols the stories, the and language itself, language itself, you know, there's a whole lot of metaphysics built into language, isn't there? You know, and just that whole realm, realm of culture, which of course also includes customs and ob- observances and hierarchies and politics, of course, is a part of that. So that whole realm, that whole realm of culture, again, intimately entangled Intimately entangled, you know, and and a big part of culture is 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 like ideology. That is that is if you like the excuses which are made for the economic system, and the excuses which are imposed on society through education, perhaps even through law, perhaps even through coercion, perhaps through propaganda. Uh, in the service of who has the most power in this system, and we have to we have to understand in all of this that power is operating, the power dynamics are operating right so so there's that kind of interlocking system of those big big systems Eco- ecology economy culture but also when I was doing this, it was occurring to me that we've been operating all along with a couple of other big systems. And, and, and perhaps not being very specific about it, and, it, and it, it, it's to my mind that one of the big benefits of doing this analysis was to, of just making this list of crises, was to be, be, become conscious of something that I've been using a little bit sort of automatically, and that is firstly to say that you know we have, we have this dialectic or this interaction between the local and the, nas- and, and the national and between the national and the global. And these these are matters of scale. We've got what's going on in our local community here in, in Bournemouth. You know, what's happening to the businesses with the lockdown and then with the tourists flocking in and, you know, and then all the little local kind of uh, um, concerns, all kinds of stuff, the Welsh language, tourism... Fact that, the fact that we've got a lot of old people live here. You know, just a whole lot of lo- little particularities and lo- local detail. Obviously embedded in the life of Wales and embedded in the life of the United Kingdom. And then perhaps embedded in the life of Europe. And then, of course, embedded in the world. Now, in the last podcast that we did, uh, we, we were trying to focus on the UK, but we end up talking about, about America. And, and as we noted in 1929, as far back as that, Even then, the world was a global global economy. America went down, everything else went down with it. Same in 2008, you know. that really, you you can't escape that that global. But at the same time, you can pay attention to your your local. It tells you a lot of things. There's a lot of stories, there's a lot of going on, there's a lot of facts to gather. There's a lot of processes to observe, a lot of transformations to observe, a lot of crises, a lot of of little local crises. Even from a crisis in your street... You know, right the way up to a crisis in, in in the nation, and then a crisis in in the world, and and seeing those uh, what you might call it say, scales of organisation interacting as well is also a useful focus. And I've realised that we do we're doing that all the time, and I just want to bring it into, into consciousness. You might say, and and another one, of course, uh, which. It's something that's been very very much on my mind with all the research I've been doing into Freud. And I could say here that I've been looking into uh, something that that's happened with that kind of research. That Freud fell out of fiver as, as an intellectual. I don't know. For the last 10, 15 years. And, uh, and, and of course, Freudian Marxists who uh, are uh, uh, very interesting to me but actually fell out of fiverr. They kind of they they started to look a bit sixties, you know, yeah. you know, and that being a pejorative term. But suddenly there suddenly seems to be a flurry of interest, and okay, I'll I I'll get a lot of stuff drops in my my inbox. Academic pipers, by academics from all over the place, and and they they just they just land in my inbox and I read I read what I can of them, and there's a flurry of interest in that again. And of course, I'm doing this series on Freud. I've done two now. And there'll perhaps be another two. And, and because wanting to, and I'm going in that direction because I'm wanting to get some purchase or to revisit the, uh, the the purchase that I do have on on actually what happens internally with people, what happens in the psyche of individuals that makes them acqui- acquiesce in all the shit that they have to put up with. You know I, I, I put it very rhetorically, but I still think it's kind of quite fair to do this to say, well why do slaves acquiesce in this slavery? maybe even welcome it maybe even maybe even and not want to lose their position of slavery this this is just this is like the, the a, a big question in political philosophy it seems to me and that involves having to get a handle on on the relationship between the world, if you like, what's out there and the psyche, what's in there, what people actually feel, what the actual drama is for them. So I've just I called that like a psyche world, and that's again an, an interaction. And again, you know, perhaps I haven't stated that enough, even though uh, if you follow our podcast, we see we've been looking into this for quite a long time. I think my first Freud, Freudian Marxism. Survey was was maybe four or five years ago in these podcasts, so that's in there as well. And that that's the that's the um, interpretative framework. And as I say, it's pragmatic, and we have to realise that you can't think of these 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 systems as things that they they are processes. They they're things that that are moving and shifting in interaction with other things that are moving and shifting on a whole lot of scales. And across time, so you have to bring in the historical dimension as well, which of course we've done in this in a a very sort of straightforward and crude way. You know, past, present, future. So that that is how I've organised the list.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right then, let's have a little go through the list and uh, see what we've identified so far. In (laughs) fact, I was even looking at looking even at the last minute Before we did this, about new things which are actually coming up now and starting to bud into another crisis. So, yes, it never stops really, but this is what we've got so far.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, So, uh, the the big system, I'm going to do them not necessarily in, in that kind of order of scale, but the economy.
0: Which is the thing that we're we're, we're focused on, particularly because I'm particularly worried about that
1: one. Well, you're worried about economic collapse, but as I say, you know, economic collapse has got an environmental dimension or an eco-dimension. Oh,
0: absolutely. It's got a psychological dimension and it's got a
1: cultural dimension. You know, the ideas that circulate will be influenced by it and those ideas will in turn put influence back on it. Whatever solution politicians or the public come up with or think tanks or academics come up with is it's going to be a matter of ideas as well you know so that, that's why in discussing the economic collapse, you have to bring in all these other, other dimensions, these other processes.
0: Yeah, this is why it's taken us so long to uh, call yeah, up
1: this yeah, yeah. series. Because well, we, we, when we,
0: we started talking about it, thinking, oh, we've got, we know quite a lot about what's going on. It should be quite an easy thing to do. And we started recording. We tried a number of times and they were just <laughs> hopeless because yeah. it actually took an awful lot more thought and uh depth of research than than we thought it yeah. would. So anyway, well, <laughs> the crises, look, here we go.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, say to the, the listeners, we could have took the easy option and done done something a little bit pattern journalistic, or we could we could kind of like try and try and honour the phenomenon, you know, which that's the difference between philosophy and journalism. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so, uh, first thing that I came up with under economy was health. In fact, that was the first thing that kind of hit me. Just just like health, well, is there a health crisis in the UK? Well, yes, there is. Because the other day, some figures come out about life expectancy in the UK. I and mean, in certain parts of the UK, it's dropping. In certain parts of the UK, life expectancy is 27 years less than it is in other parts of the UK. The rich the rich people are still living until they're 80 and 85, but in some parts of the country, there's a massive God, I didn't drop. know
0: that. That's yeah. that's a I mean, hell of a difference.
1: Yeah, it's 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 astonishing. It's astonishing. That's now, disgusting. We're, actually, we're, absolutely yeah, disgusting. Yeah, we've always had we've always had those different, differentials between the rich, the rich and the poor, but that sort of evened out a, a little bit, you know, at, at one point. But now they have started kind of diver, diverging <sighs> again Un, under it's ten years of Tory rule. Yeah, and. Uh, it's it, it's in those 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 deindustrialised, poor, desperate part, parts of the country, and, and amongst working class and people who, who don't have any any savings or any resources. That, that, that this, this is hitting home. Uh, again, reports from from doc, doctors, public health doctors, and the rise of nineteenth century diseases like rickets scurvy as well scurvy Scurvy is is lack of vitamin c and rickets is i think d vitamin d it's a very very serious disease that cripples cripples people because the bones don't form properly and you get bow legs and so so all the problems that come out out of that you know but there are report reporting 19th century diseases of deprivation in the uk
0: yeah i've heard that again
1: again on on the on on Partly to do with uh, Brexit, partly to do with uh, Tory or, or, cruelty. Tory cruelty. Partly to do with austerity, which we've had for ten years, post two thousand and eight, which we talked about in the, the other the other uh, podcast. That we've got now, like ever expanding waiting, waiting lists for for medical treatment. Uh, Covid obviously me- meant a lot of elective surgery, for instance, went on went on hold you know, until such time, just to free up doctors to deal with the sheer emergency of it in the beginning. And it's still there, there's still tremendous strain on the NHS. And if there's a flu season this winter, and, and COVID at quite a high level, which doesn't look like a biting, uh, there's going to be severe strain on, on the NHS. Well, there already is severe strain. and this Yeah,
0: there already is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's, a, there's a politics behind this. The the, the the conservatives do want to replace the health service with an insurance system like like the American. Which would be a complete complete disaster. They are they are running it down, you know. And if you if you need chapter and verse on that there are two uh, movies I'd urge you to watch. One is The Dirty War on the NHS by John Pilger. It's now on Vimeo. John Pilger published this at the time of the, the, the last general election and it came on YouTube, but every time it was on YouTube, it was on there for half an hour, then then YouTube took it down. So John Pilger moved it somewhere, else. or his friends or his, his uh, you know fans of his work moved it somewhere else. He didn't be there for a short one. And he, so trying, I, I spent quite a bit of time trying to spread it on Twitter and Facebook and say, watch this, watch this, thinking that this could clinch the, the, the election for Labour, actually but it, it was killed. But it's now out on John Pilger's own channel on Vimeo. Just put John Pilger in there. It's called The Dirty War on the NHS. And another one is called, I think it's called The Great NHS Hoist. And it's a doctor, uh, did there in an NHS doctor, I think he's called. Dr Bob Gill. And uh, for the purposes of making this film, he teamed up with a filmmaker called Drew McFadyen. In fact they've got a website which is called thegreatnhsheist.com. No spices, the great NHS Hoist, no spices, no underscores, just one continuous word.com. And uh he also appears in John Pilger's movie, taking a slightly different angle. Yeah. And you will be no doubt this is very well researched uh, uh, material. It's not conspiracy theory, it's very well researched, and they're coming for, for the NHS and, and running it down. Is a part of it. You see, you can create, you collapse it, and then you blame it. And they're already doing it. Yeah, they are. There already. is a campaign going off in the gutter press against GPs, and because because of COVID, they're not able to sort of do the one to one. You know, as one doctor says, you know, I can't actually, you know, get get eyeball to eyeball with every varuca. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah.
1: And and it's putting an enormous strain on a personal level on a psychological level on on, on healthcare professionals. Yeah. That's all to, that's all coming under health, you know.
0: What, what they're trying to do there is, as you said, the blame. So they're going to deliberately underfund it to the point where it just breaks. Mm. Yeah. And then they'll say, oh, look, look, mm. the, the NHS is, isn't yeah. working. That system's a bad system. We have to yeah. privatise it as the only yeah. way to save it now. Yeah. And, and co- then they'll try and get the public on side for that. Although, good luck with that, Tories. Yeah. And,
1: of course, foreign nurses and foreign, foreign doctors are, are less welcome. Yeah. They can come here, but it's a lot more of a palaver. There are massive shortages yeah. anyway.
0: So, a massive uh, health crisis. I mean, like, yeah, Lord, this is huge right now. Which no, no, is no, of course. not finished. Freedom Day wasn't Freedom Day at all. Was it, it was like it, Infection Day. That's
1: 4,000 people died since Freedom Day of COVID.
0: I think it's uh, 15,000 people it? have died that's since right. Freedom Day. That's the day, figure. Something you, like yeah, that. It's you around know, about 15,000. 15, I mean, free. 800 people have died in the last week.
1: Everybody's behaving as though it's over. Yeah and it's not we're still in the midst of a pandemic it I hasn't don't... gone to the endemic this it's...
0: morning i was i was just trying to uh look up things we've got a lot of data on it now like the the difference in the death rate between uh like a a, a flu a flu winter and uh, a, a covid uh winter uh, and um what uh, what I found out was that, say, in a typical year, you'd have, say, between 25,000, 35,000 people die of flu. But in the time that uh, COVID's been here, it's been, if we're going to do on a yearly basis, and it's been here like, around about two years, that's 70,000 people per year died. And that's with uh Long periods of lockdown, mitigations, mask wearing, wearing, social distancing and the vaccinations. So, of course, 70,000 isn't really a real figure because it would have been way, way higher than that if it hadn't have been for the measures that were taken. So people who say, oh, the death rate's only the same as flu. uh, It really isn't.
1: No. No. So, I'm still on health, you know, and... uh, we know there's there's an, an, an energy shortage which is, is going to come in a bit, <laughs> uh, but uh, preempting really is an energy shortage or oh. it's not exactly a shortage, but there's been a hike in the price of winter energy such as electricity and gas. It's going manyfold. Even since since August, it's it's gone up, you know, it's doubled or something, and it could go up more. We don't know what's going to happen there because Mr Putin is, is he, um, <laughs> trying to play a political card and say we'll let you have a bit more of our Russian gas, we'll let a bit more out, you know. But uh, how this impacts on health, of course, is that we'll we'll we'll, we'll have op- people with hypothermia, you know, yeah. old people.
0: With the soaring uh, energy prices and the uh, yeah. the twenty pound uplift disappearing off the universal credit, it's, it's, and a lot yeah. of people losing their jobs,
1: a lot of people are not going to be able to keep warm warm in the in the winter. No, now, there's a, there's a lovely quip that went all, all, all around uh, Twitter was that uh, if you remember back in the pandemic when they when they first lifted lockdown and they were trying to give some stimulus to you know, high street cafes and, 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 and restaurants and stuff, eat out to help out. Oh, yeah, the, eat, that's the that's disastrous
0: that's eat out to help that's out. That's you have
1: two, two for the price of one if you went, went into a restaurant.
0: And got COVID, is it? And for got, free, and for, got for yourself, entirely for free. Yeah,
1: free bonus for a dose of COVID.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but the thing that was going around Twitter was was like, eat note to help out. Yeah. And then some wag comes back with, heat note. out. To help out. Oh, yeah. So in you fact, you, these
0: should be the Tories' new slogans. Yeah,
1: a lot of people. There's some very poor people in this country are going to be faced with the choice between eating and, and keeping warm. Yeah. And that will have an enormous health impact. Cold weather kills old people, you know. Of course. Yeah. Uh, 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 and I, also,
0: but we're talking about nutritional. Uh, um, uh, uh, yeah talking about illnesses uh, caused by lack of nutrition. Yeah, which... So if these people have to choose between heating or eating, again, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, it's the... going to make that even the, worse, the... isn't it?
1: Absolutely, they're going to be massive health impacts.
0: And uh, you know, Unless just a little there are some side can... on uh, these two things here. Uh, you know, I'm kind of expecting like some pretty serious civil unrest at some point because the uh, the poverty is just rising really, really quickly. Yeah. And, and these people, they're going to be very, very large groups of people in Britain who are really pissed off and angry <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: and desperate.
1: There's quite a good chance that they'll be induced into blaming the wrong people, though. But anyway, that's another question we must't preempt. we've got so as you say the um, we're looking at problems of hypothermia'll we'll, get uh, uh, somewhere down the pike yeah, we we're... haven't
0: even gone to brexit yet
1: Yeah, we're looking at problems of nutritional deficiency, and of course that's what rickets and scurvy and nutritional deficiencies so we've got all that. On top of that, I would say the mental health consequences are going to be vast. And now we we did a podcast about two days before lockdown came on, and we pretty well predicted how things would pan out, with some prescience, I think, which is why you should listen to us. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> but one of the things we said, oh, look, look out for the mental the mental health consequences, of, well, of lockdown, but of people now, many many thousands of families. Yeah, you know, hundreds of thousands of families uh, who, who have been bereaved, uh, who otherwise wouldn't have been, many thousands of families, millions of families facing uh, the consequences that we've just talked about. You know, not being able to get adequate health care not being able to afford to keep warm or to eat properly, and so forth. So. And the whole kind of frightening thing of a of a pandemic, and the whole kind of fear of going in the supermarket and okay, yeah, there is now only three tops of ice cream, and 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 now that might not seem much in the scheme of things, but but you know there there are empty shelves and there are people suddenly realising that the 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 cornucopian choice that we used to, and you can debate whether that's a good thing or not. But nevertheless, this old familiar world is, is not how it used to be. And quite suddenly and quite quickly this has happened. All of this contributes to mental health problems, you know, like just long-term anxiety. And I don't think that can be underestimated. And still under health, well, at the moment they're claiming we're being told that there's that there's very full employment. There's even, in fact, like a shortage of people, and that they are therefore able to, to, to bargain for higher wages.
0: Which the Tories yeah. are claiming is they planned it all along this way. Yeah. And it's like and their it, victory. Well,
1: <laughs> it, 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 you know, and it's a good thing. Look, you're going to get more money, but it's, it's bollocks. As soon as, soon as there's un- unemployment, and if companies go bust because they can't can't get the people, or because. They can't afford the energy for the for the you know, if they're, if they're industries that use a lot of energy and that the price is now putting them out of profitability, so they're laying people off. This could easily flip into mass unemployment.
0: For instance, if you have a company and half of their workforce was from Europe and they've all been sent packing because of Brexit, if that company finds it too difficult to get the skilled workers necessary to fill that labour gap. They're not going to be able to carry on going and they could end up uh, going out of business, which means that the British employees all get sacked. So although there's a uh, plenty no. of jobs, it could still end up with uh, mass unemployment, like you said.
1: Yeah. OK, so... And health was the first was the first aspect of the economy that that, that sort of jumped in, jumped into my mind. Following that was the obvious thing which we've mentioned a little bit is Brexit. And the, I mean you could write a five page list without even breaking a sweat. and I, I just mentioned a few things. One is the breakdown of just supply chains in general. You know, it gets, due to Brexit. Due to Brexit. And,
0: and also, Covid is a factor here, COVID, but of yeah. course, su- particularly su- Brexit.
1: It is true that there are supply chain uh, problems uh, throughout the world because Brexit and lockdowns in various countries disrupted disrupted them amazingly. I mean, just, just as a little example, there are a, mil- a million containers waiting on ships, on a number of ships offshore in the Pacific to go into container ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach off the US, uh, mostly from China and Southeast Asia, Korea and so on, uh, simply because the supply chain has broken down and there's, it's all kind of clogged up. And President Biden's answer to that, he's, he's, put, he's put the ports on 24-hour work. You know, so uh, obviously that will depend, can he get the labour again? So uh, that is simply to illustrate that there is a sort of a global chaos that, uh, that, that the pandemic... But Brexit seems about. to
0: magnify everything. That's a problem yeah. well, everywhere well, else. Well, it, to being a really big crisis here.
1: Yeah, it's, it's obvious that it's it's laid on a whole new new layer of, of, uh, of mess, and particularly farming.
0: Yeah, the amount of uh, businesses which have have been bankrupted hmm. to Brexit is is growing and growing and growing yeah. by the day.
1: I mean, in in, in farming again, people can't. Can't export their stuff because there's, there's suddenly the UK is a third country, so there's no smooth export of say say meat, for instance, or or shellfish, you know, and and so on. So farming's taking an enormous hit. I mean, I'm in the habit because I wake up early, listening to farming today on Radio Four, which comes on at five o'clock. And farmers are in tears. And as a group, they largely voted for Brexit. They thought that it was going to be better.
0: And they're, off, they're usually Tory voters as well, aren't they?
1: Yeah, very often. Not always, but very often. I mean, you know, it's they, they, it, it is their natural party. Unless they're tenants. You know, it might be a bit different if they're tenant farmers, or smallholders maybe, but certainly, be, you know, big big farmers, they're landowners, Tories, the to party of land. And it's all it does yeah, I mean, The Tory
0: Heartlands hmm. are like farming farming but, uh, constituencies, are they? Race so Ma- they've done a really stupid thing by absolutely shafting the farmers uh, re- and then not giving them any help.
1: Re- race Rhys said, Oh it's gonna be easy, you'll be able to sell sell stuff you, you know, because you'll the UK market'll be your oyster and and, and the will you'll be able to make a good profit and sell it cheaper. And so food's gonna be cheaper. And somebody like George Galloway parroted this stuff. And all the people in the actually who know, you know, people, who, I don't know, like a professor of international law like Michael Dugan said, yeah, You're completely insane. This is what it involves. And he got chapter and verse because he understands treaties and how long it takes to get trade deals together and what they entail in minute detail as opposed to just having some ideological fantasy. So farming's really taken a hit. I mean, the thing of the pigs, the pig farming. Is just ast- astonishing that be- because the energy price went up, just catch this for the way all this. This is this is this is our system. Why you need to think systems with everything? You need to trace the connections between all these little aspects, all these events. Right. So the companies that make fertilizer out of air, basically, by using enormous amounts of energy to fix nitrogen. Uh, there are two companies do that in the UK, and as a byproduct of that those processes, they produce extremely pure carbon dioxide, which finds a whole host of uses in the economy, food packaging, medicine, as a part, I presume, of like um, anaesthetic gases and so so forth. Uh, and uh, they're also they, what they're used for is to power com- the, the compressed gas is used to power the bolts that are used for stunning animals in slaughterhouses. Now look, at this, look at this for a chain of events, you know. Now, both of these companies stopped production because they couldn't turn a profit because energy was suddenly too, too costly. So they just went, they mothballed and lied workers off and stuff. So suddenly there's no means of slaughtering, slaughtering the pigs. And this is a very, very tight supply chain. And the pigs have to be a certain size so that the cuts of pork fit the packaging that's available, which is all determined by the supermarkets. Suddenly, they've got these pigs which, which weigh, weigh, weigh a ton or something. They're, they're, they're enormous and the farmers can't kill them. They're, you know, they're not allowed to just go and shoot them. There's all sorts of animal welfare issues involved. Now pigs are being called and burned. Perfectly healthy pigs because there's no way... There's, the, the, the supply chain is broke because of the, the energy price going up and the impact of that on what on two companies. Now one of those companies has been given a bailout. Eventually the government, much too late, bails them out and says we, we will we will pay you so you stay profitable. That company is owned by an American fucking hedge fund or something. It's even like an offshore global capitalist concern receiving the taxpayers' handouts. If, if you want to use that terminology, basically a government handout. It's, it's much too light now. Now hundreds of thousands of pigs are being are being culled.
0: Yeah. Well, so, e, e, they, as you said, they've they've been unable to cull them because of the uh, the la- the lack of the yeah. CO two and it, lack yeah. of vets. Because I think they sent a lot of vets back to the yeah. EU as well. Well, the
1: that, that, the other factor is that even if we get the gas back on stream, we haven't got enough slaughter slaughtermen because a lot of them are a lot of butchers, you know, uh, or even the butchers to to, to process the meat. Because a lot of those were continentals that that went back. The government is now, again, much too late. So they're going to issue some kind of emergency visas to Poles and Czechs and Romanians with butchering skills to come over. And they've done that under protest, right? They've had to be forced to do it because they don't like... They're neoliberals. They don't like taking government action. Right? So it's a three-factor kind of catastrophe,
0: yeah, and whether they'll even come. Let's let's not forget the famous well, incident of the lorry drivers recently, where the uh, the government, under great pressure, uh, kicking and stream- screaming, did issue a uh, five thousand visas for lorry drivers from the EU, and uh, they got twenty. It
1: was twenty-seven.
0: No. Twenty. No. Uh, it was. We thought it was twenty-seven. Oh. Big uh, big fanfare, but actually it's only 20. Yeah, and Boris, 20, lo- 20 drivers have come out of the 5,000 because they just don't want to come here.
1: But Boris Johnson goes on records. I know it's doing really well. There's 127, because he even lied about that. And it, <laughs> even 127 would be pathetic. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, 5,000 5, yeah. wouldn't cut it.
0: Yeah. Oh, and speaking of Boris Johnson, this is priceless. Um, uh, he, I, he went on, I think it was, I can't remember if it was TV or the radio, and he was being pressed about the uh, the problem with the, the the pork industry and and the pigs and uh, you know how healthy animals were just going to have to be slaughtered and incinerated because of Brexit. And he said, "Oh, well, you know, it's 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 okay because the pigs were going to die anyway, right?" He's, he's
1: actually a blithering <laughs> idiot. You know.
0: God, I mean, I mean how how did the uh, the the you know the the pig the pig industry respond it, to mm-hmm. that? That's just
1: it, wow. He's just an absolute fucking plonker. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway, I'll carry on. Fishing, well, we did actually do a podcast about about, uh, trouble with the French over fishing. (sighs) And how there was trouble in Jersey over the the Jersey fleet and the French. And then the French turn around and says we're going to cut off your electricity. Because the UK imports an enormous amount of electricity from France. Yeah, and Jersey,
0: all of their electricity comes from
1: All of Jersey's electricity comes from from France, all under yeah. undersea because because <laughs> France has got loads and loads of nuclear reactors, and they produce a surplus of electricity, and we buy it off them. I mean, they're saying, "Well, fuck you, you're going to focus fi- about with the fishing. We'll we'll, we'll turn off your electric." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, this is priceless, isn't it?
0: Sorry if anyone's listening to this from Jersey and we're laughing, but yeah, you, uh, you, you
1: like know, well, it was going to. Well, it comes it really. It you? comes to England. It comes to the south yeah, of England as yeah. well. So. There's an enormous fuck you there, and I think we did um, we did a, we did a podcast on it if I remember rightly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: but fishing's destroyed.
1: Fishing is destroyed, yeah. and again they voted. Yeah, they voted. They, for they it.
0: actively campaigned for Brexit, yeah. and they are absolutely destroyed now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. But that's not being reported in the press. But,
1: no, it was. so They were definitely sold a pig in the park. You know, and it, it, I mean, it, it makes me. Just as an aside here, at some time we'll have to sort of go into a very detailed consideration of this. And that's about the nature of democracy, you know. I mean, I think it, like Churchill said, it's the worst, best system that we've got. But you shouldn't fetishise democracy or oligarchy or, or, I don't know, communist meritocracy or anything. You shouldn't fetishise your system, right, over and above everything else. What you should do is, is ask the question... We were just you know, if we were if we were privileged enough to design a society for a new planet or something, um what you need to do is is ask, you know, what kind of decision system is gonna produce the best results. You know. And and what you have to do that then is figure out well what, what does best results mean? In other words, what do we value? In other words, what sort type of society do we want? And I think that's unavoidable. However much you try and avoid that kind of thinking on the basis that it's utopian and therefore dangerous, I don't think it can be avoided. And there is a question about democracy. Democracy works if everybody's got the information and the education to process it, at least to some de- to some degree, right? And I, I mean I don't believe in uh, what the system we used to have in this country that a university graduate had two votes, and everybody else only had one. <laughs> You know, it's got kind of anomaly in the system that got that got pushed out. I, don't, I don't think that is far too, far too sort of elitist. But nevertheless, there's a problem. There is a, there is a problem. And and, and these, these people voted for Brexit and, the, and then it screwed them up the arse. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because they weren't told the fucking truth. And that the elections were manipulated through data manipulation, through the kind of Cambridge Analytica aggregate IQ style of manipulation which is a misuse of, 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 of the uh, information technology that we've got. And it's thoroughly dystopian. We need to think about that. Yeah. So that is an aside. I've got two more things under Brexit, you know. Uh, the next one is pollution. Because of the breakdown in supply chains and the chemicals for dealing with purifying water and for this, that and the other... On the energy front, is that the, the government has, has said, said to water, uh, sewage processing uh, corporations, companies, we're going to let you put put untreated sewage into the water. We're going to we're going to waive the standards, which of course was the reason, the real reason, the disaster capitalists wanted to leave the EU, is because they could escape regulation on wo- workers' rights, workers' protections, and environmental protection and animal welfare. All of that stuff, they want out out of it because that then make more profit. It's as simple and as crass and horrible as that. So we're now getting some some rivers which we've been recovering from a hundred years of in, in, uh, industrial civilization, inverted commerce, starting to re- recover, and now being polluted again. Awful, and I expect it to see uh, revealed over time, though not generally published in the gutter press. More and more instances of environmental degradation through Brexit. And the last thing I wanted to mention is Northern Ireland, you know, it's still like an enormous problem with all kinds of political ramifications. And we did see a kind of a stirring of unrest in Northern Ireland. Now, whether that was recreational rioting, as they call it, or, or whether the Good Friday Agreement will break down, and we saw this again. You heard it here first. Fact like we said at the beginning, there's there's no way out. There's no way out of not throwing Ireland under the bus with this. I said that like the day after the referendum, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, we were talking uh, for, for ages about that. We kept going. How are they going to make Northern Ireland work? And well, we really can't. thought about it. We couldn't mm. think of a single way that they could do mm. it.
1: They can't. You know, not 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 with a hard Brexit. They could do it with a single market and um, customs union. That could, could that could have worked. Anyway, that, that, that Brexit as our second aspect of the economy. And it's by no means exhaustive. And in fact, I think this list could have been ten times bigger. They, this is the stuff that jumps out at us. My next heading under economy is profiteering. And um, and just just the, the way the billionaires are getting richer and richer out, out of this conglomeration of crises. We know that 30 odd billion went to Serco for test and trace that never materialised and never worked. Not 39 million, 39 billion which was handed to cronies, you know, Dido Harding's husband's a Tory MP by the way and all this all this kind of shit. The, the whole cronyism stuff, which is coming home to roost a little bit but by now means enough. The Tories are still 10 points ahead, 11 points ahead in the polls as of today. Ridiculous. But there's a whole lot of kind of nefarious shit going down. Opportunistic scamming, off call called it called that. Billionaires worldwide have made a trillion or something out of the, the pandemic, and even in this country, billions and billions have gone to the already rich. Meanwhile, child poverty's hitting new heights. Malnutrition's hitting new heights. Life expectancy's going down. Right, the poor, the poor, uh, 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 you know, the really poorest are losing their twenty pound. That they got as as a, as, a, as a sort of a, a booster for the pandemic. At the same and time, they pay there,
0: more tax as well.
1: National insurance has and gone National up.
0: National insurance has gone up.
1: And this is just a typical disaster capitalist scam. And we've gone into it before on other occasions. We'll go into it again. Now, here on the on the radio the other morning, that JP Morgan send a spokesperson, I forget who it was, it was was some executive from J.P. Morgan, which is one of the world's biggest investment banks, saying it's all looking hunky-dory, you know, the the economy's doing great, because, because share prices are holding. Why are they holding? Because the QE money, as we mentioned the other day, what happened in 2008, the QE money is flowing into stock buybacks, which is artificially inflating the share prices. So actually, the stock market is really in a bubble kind of froth state.
0: It's kind of like a fairy tale, really, isn't it?
1: It's a fairy tale, yeah. It, it, it's a casino, and um, there's a lot of froth there. Th- through the Bank of England printing money, and the same is true in Europe, and the same is true in the in the US. Now, it looks as though they can keep doing this indefinitely, but can they? This would be the question. So uh, the next the next heading would be corruption, which of course is a subset, I suppose, of the property the PPI, P, what's it the PPE PPE scams, you know, personal protection equipment scams, you know, co- companies, uh, I don't know, like. Some Tory pod- politicians, gardener or something, starts a fifteen pound company and gets a million pound fucking. I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. Million pound contract for PPE, girls and boys, some substandard uh, uh, masks from somewhere that don't even work or fit or do the job, but pockets the money, and uh, uh, this 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 contracts for your mates without proper tendering, you know, and and. and, and proper scrutiny of what's happening, has has swindled the economy out of millions and millions and millions of pounds. So you've got a massive corruption and profiteering and, and, uh, and gaming the system within a culture of cronyism and casino capitalism. That's the economy and I've got one other thing under economy, like I say, this is not by no means exhaustive, and that is technological change. You know, the background to all this is that there is rapid technological change, and it's not going away, and the, that work is not stopping. Automation, robotics, AI, so forth. And, and that's not going away, but its its impact is is, is huge, and, and it in ways that we probably can't foresee yet. So that's pretty well what I would want to say about the economy before I go on to ecology, and then and then after that, culture. And at this point, it makes sense to say: Is there any? Are there any resonances with with what we talked about vis a vis? 1929 and 2008. Well, this is clearly a, a pretty dangerous situation.
0: It does, does feel like we're teetering on the edge of disaster. Yeah. In fact, I think we might have gone over the edge yeah, by I now. Wa- I, I do actually
1: think we're in the in the midst, midst of it. Uh, I watched uh, Michael Hisseltine, who was a Tory grandee. He's, he's in there, quite an old man maybe in his 90s, I don't know. But uh, he he was Mrs Thatcher's deputy for a while and he did hold various high office. He was the defence minister, uh, minister. he was was Secretary of State for Defence, he was um, Deputy Prime Minister. I think he worked on environment and, and the Board of Trade and so forth. He was never a chancellor. And... It's actually on Sky News, you know, and he's not, he's not the kind of person, he's not my kind of go-to person, but I wondered what he was going to say. You know, he's Tory Grande, part of the Thatcher government. And he said this morning, if, if I was the Chancellor, I'd be very, very worried. And he thinks that the outcome will be inflation, high inflation, and high interest rates, which of course will hit mortgage repayments you know, because the rates are quite low and a lot of people are stretched on these lower rates. So if they suddenly got to pay more interest on on their mortgage loan, they're going to be strapped and there could perhaps be like a default, you know. And we saw what defaults did in 2008 in the US. The whole world economy come crashing down through mortgage defaults. So there's a problem there because there's an awful lot of debt in society, and it all commands an interest rate at the moment very low. What happens if it goes up to 15% like it was in the 80s? 15%, 20%, 20% on mortgages, you know. What's that going to do? You know. So there's a stability in banking, like the, the, the possibility of some kind of default. Now, there is anxiety in the US around... Auto, finance, you know, everybody buys their car on a loan. And it it looks as though the finance capitalists did a similar thing to what they did with mortgages. There's a lot of subprime auto loans that might well be defaulted on with a similar outcome to 2008. I mean, another thing is student debt. Student debt in the U.S. is a trillion, and it's very, very high in this country. And if I was a student and into student politics, what I'd be saying is, let's have a massive debt strike. Let's just all refuse to pay it. What they're gonna do? They're gonna lock up a million, a million people with student debt. That you know, and that is what I would be saying if I was a f- fucking student. I'd be pushing for a debt strike, just to teach these incompetents a lesson. Because again another thing that shines through here in which there are resonances with 2008 and uh, particularly with 1929 is the sheer incompetence of the politicians and the economists. They don't have an adequate grasp on what's going on in this, this, this casino capitalism. Even Gordon Brown got it wrong. Gordon Brown, PhD in economics and, and I would say a very smart man. But he didn't get it. we and this lot, this show in this country. My honest opinion of them is that they—they are mediocrities, all of them. But they believe that they're not. They—they're they're all pretty well, to a man and woman, perfect examples of Dunning Kruger. You know, which is whereby people think they're a lot smarter than they are. You And
0: know? oh, they're all just addicted to the idea of British exceptionalism. Aren't and they? all
1: kinds of all kinds of magical thinking and nonsense and superstition. So. Again, we had something like that, particularly in 1929 with, with the, the fond belief that the market would put it right. In fact, pro-market pundits are saying all that stuff now. There's another resonance. The JP Morgan guy was saying that, basically. And this is why the, the, this government, because it's ideologically committed to free market ideology, are ve- a very resistant to, to bailing out. Now, they do bail out when they're pushed, but it's always a bit too late. Or well, not quite enough, like they had to bail out that company, that fertiliser company, to get the CO2, the carbon dioxide, back into the other, otherwise the economy was going to collapse. And all, it's so, okay, they've they've, they've pushed that back a little bit, but they're still going to have to slaughter 100,000 pigs and burn them. In a world where there's, in a country where there's full banks, and, and in a world where two billion people go to bed hungry every night tell me there's any sense in, in that i mean the other the other fallout will 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 be the political fallout because there's no way that people are not going to get very 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 angry and they already are very angry you know as i keep saying there's a lot of free floating anger and resentment amongst people and lockdown and covid and the mismanagement of covid which two parliamentary committees found the government to have completely mismanaged the first part of this pandemic, that's created an enormous amount of resentment and anger. And it's going to go somewhere. My fear is that the right will capture it, and the right is trying to capture it. You know, the best-case scenario is that these people people unionise, and unions Uh, are having a bit of a comeback because the discovery has been made that you can unionise precariat workers. Prior to that, it wasn't part of union culture because union culture grew up around coal mines and factories where you have a lot of people thrown together in the camaraderie. Very often of shared danger, say miners. Why the the miners' unions were so strong and solid because they were very often single communities, single village or a small town built round a pit. And blokes sharing danger, you know. They went, they took their life in their hands when they went down the pit, and that produced the psycho, psychological solidarity of those communities. And if they had a strike, they were all out, no messing you know. And so, so union culture has, has sort of taken that lesson, and, and and perhaps thought you can't you can't unionize precariat but you can, and it's catching on. I don't know to the extent, and I'm going to do a bit of research on that. I'm going to just look at some figures and see if I've got to figure it out because it, 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 it strikes me as being significant. And the, there are going to be strikes, again, in the US, which takes the lead on all this. If it, when I was watching Richard Wolf the other day, he's it a force of nature, the old chap is, you know. He it just went through a list of all, all the companies where the workers are either on strike or threatening to strike in the US. Huge. And of course US unions took a bigger battering than even UK unions with the rise of neoliberalism and with its political proponents being Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher over here. It's coming back. So that the best case scenario is, is that this will be like a 1929 scenario where, where unions and leftists are able to pressure the government to revive the economy through a new deal. And it would have to be a Green New Deal, obviously. Now, Johnson is trying to steal that thunder from Jeremy Corbyn's two manifestos, both of which had at their core a green industrial revolution, and that's the most sensible economic idea out of a mainstream political party in the UK since 1945, you know. And now Johnson is stealing. But I think he's only stealing the words. But that would be a good case scenario, and that is where there is a resonance. But the worst case scenario is that all that free floating resentment and anger is going to flow into anti mask, you know, or anti immigrant, and into right wing or far right fascism. And this is the danger. Yeah. You know. So there's, so there's a political resonance. Of course, this is precisely what happened in in, in, 19, in the 1930s, that, that, that there was massive p- p- polarisation in Germany, in the UK, in America. People don't realise that there were mass Nazi rallies in New York in the 1930s, which filled Madison Square Garden with huge swastikas and the head of the American fascists uh, addressing this, this, this crowd, this massive crowd and as we know a lot of those ideas and sentiments are, are abroad in the US and they're being propagated globally by by a global uh, right international yeah. and the UK we've got the same stuff so there's going to be a massive resonance I think with, in fact I say going to be there already is massive resonance with that tension and polarisation of the 1930s 2008, I don't know, what's the state of the banks, you know, as I said, well, there is a threat of of, uh, subprime auto loans. Maybe we'll get mortgage defaults in the UK when the interest rate goes up, which will go up because of the inflation, which is everything going up because of supply chain, creating shortages, which puts the price of everything up, right? But also, like, the energy that you need to do everything the fuel to move the food, to, to stack the supermarket shelves. The, the, the fuel to move the the, the, the... ...the products, the components for manufacturing. You know, the, the, the whole supply chain. It's all takes energy, it all takes fuel. So, the price of everything is going to go up. Right? So, that's, that's what inflation is, when the price goes up more than people's ability to pay for the, the, the goods. And the response—the only mechanism the Bank of England's got to do anything about—is to, is to up the up the base interest rate, and that the banks and the building societies and, and uh, private uh, lenders and borrowers—it's all going to cost a lot more money. And massively destabilise the economy. Michael Lesilton's right, even though he's the stuff he doesn't understand about the printing of money, from what I can see. So there, there are some resonances from the economy. The, uh, the health challenges and the mental health challenges and the challenges to the NHS again are going to add to the political turmoil. There's nothing going to roll people up more than when their relatives are dying because they can't get treatment.
0: Or the relatives are dying because they can't afford to turn the heating on.
1: That's right, yeah. And, and, and yet the wrong people are believing blind. The Daily Mail has been, has been mounting a high campaign against GPs... Because a lot of GPs say, say, "Phone in and we'll have a quick chat," because, like you say, they're trying to. They, they don't want people coming into the surgery with Verrucas, you know, when they can't kind of possibly see anybody, because there's a shortage. You know, many, many thousands of GPs are required to man the system properly. There's a shortage, as we said, through Brexit, etc., but also through the conscious running down of the NHS in order to do a disaster capitalism job on it. Which, as I said, is well documented. There's no doubt about this is what they're doing. Mm. So how much political unrest is that going to come? So a lot, to my mind, depends on the direction in which that political unrest goes.
0: So who manages to capture the resentment and the anger?
1: Yeah, or the alienation or whatever you want. It. But
0: I suppose there could be more than one faction that captures it.
1: Well, there will. Well, you'll get... You, 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 so what happened in the 30s, you've got running battles in the streets in Munich and in London between fascists and communists. Mm. They're all basically working men thrown out of work, looking for a political solution.
0: Yeah. Speaking of being out of work, just um, something that is possibly coming because of the energy crisis that we have at the moment. It would seem most likely that in the, the short term, even though that could be months, the government will be forced to deal with the energy crisis by shutting down non-essential businesses, which is will kind of be the same mm. thing, really, for the economy as is going into lockdown. Mm. Now, if this happens, I've been thinking about this today, new information turning over in my mind, all those people will be out of work, all of a sudden, millions of them. Now... I very much doubt most of the companies will be able to continue paying their workers if they're not producing anything. And I also very much doubt that the government would step in and pay the workers if they're not producing anything either. So they'll all be at home. And there's because and needing to heat their homes far more than normal because normally they'd be at work using the heat of their workplace. So now they're at home and they're having to pay more for heating whilst at the same time having no money. Uh, are the companies going to sack them? If this is going to last for months, would that happen? Um, I mean, this, this could be a real crisis with... Millions of people suddenly being out of work and rising energy prices, rising food prices, and well rising prices of everything really, and also a shortage, quite a shortage of everything that's mm-hmm. only gonna get worse from here on in.
1: Mm.
0: So what do you what do you think what's going to happen with that?
1: Um I think the the, the fuel price will probably even out.
0: Any any idea a of a time protein. frame from the sort no, of things you're no, looking
1: but at? It's already flattened a little bit. I mean, it, it was like going up like, and it was almost getting to the scenario. It was going to double every few days or something. The price of gas, given the, the, the scarcity and so forth. Uh, but Mr. Putin, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, has, has released more Russian gas into the system in order to in order to flatten the price a bit. And I think he's, he's going to score some political points with that, you know, globally and get himself a bit of kudos. And also demonstrate, you know, that, well, the suppliers have got the whip hand, you know, which, of course, is what happened in the 70s with the OPEC crisis when the, the oil-producing nations ganged together to say to the companies, which behaved like feudal lords in many of the countries like Nigeria and Iran, to say to them, fuck you! Actually, now we're gonna look after our nat- our uh, national natural resources, and, and put embargoes on exporting oil to to Europe, and and then, you know, when they decided to let the oil out, like the price was ten times more or something. I think it went from like five dollars to I don't know. It, it, but anyway, there was just this huge, overnight hike in the price. But it was a political maneuver by the by the governments of Saudi and Iran, Kuwait and so on, and Libya, you know. And then on top of that, of course, they had a miners' strike, so in 1975 you got the the three-day week, because there really was, uh, you you know, an energy shortage. And the the, the miners sort of took took their their advantage, there was a shortage of petrol, but the 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 electricity was generated by coal, so the miners go on strike. So suddenly there's no coal, I mean... Uh, Ted Heath, then in nineteen seventy-five in this in the midst of this horrible situation uh, calls a snap election and loses. And Labor gets in with four seat majority, I think it was something Jim Callan, you know. That kind of scenario. It's a bit different now, but the point I'm making is that the, the, the energy producing countries like demonstrated they started to flex their muscle. Mr. Putin's having a little flex of his muscles, as he likes to do. But it will, it will level the price, you know, it'll price it will price it, it will, but I've got no idea of timeframes. And they say that there is not actually a shortage, even though Britain, again, because of the magical thinking of, of politicians and economists, dismantled its gas storage facilities, It's now, uh, I don't know, a tenth of what it is in Italy or France or Germany. It's tiny. Because they dismantled it, because it costs money to store. They could have had a month's storage or two months' storage and used it to even out the price fluctuations in the the global free market. Oh, that
0: would be for the common good, wouldn't it? And they wouldn't want to do that.
1: No. Anyway, uh, so there are resonances. Just to summarise there, there are resonances... Resonance is to do with employment. resonances to do with po- the, po- the politics, you know, and, and the, the strong emotions that are going to fuel the politics here. Uh, resonance is with some kind of instability in, the, in, in the, the, you know, the core financial system, the banking, with inflation and probably stagflation, which is a combination of inflation and, and stagnation of the economy. Because if if a, a lot of businesses go out, there is going to be stagnant stagnant growth inverted vertical commerce. You know, it's just like the economy just kind of like stumbles, bounces along the bottom, as it were. It Keeps you know, but the, the, there's no dynamism or expansion or investment stuff like that. And you get a combination of that with with very high, with high inflation, which there will be. It's already happening. It's five percent. It's been like t- it's been like half a percent or a percentism for years. Even the Q e didn't budget, but now situations such that, given this combination of catastrophes reinforcing each other, which is the, the point this is this is what the system's thinking teaches you you get chaos when you get a whole a, a lot of systems all going unstable in the same direction at the same time, It gets a, a feedback loop
0: so would you it, say that all of our systems are unstable right now unstable yeah. enough to?
1: Well, uh, create this we,
0: feedback loop of the spiral that you're discussing. Yeah.
1: When we do the other two components of this, which we've touched upon, because you can't talk about one without talking about all the others, but when we kind of focus in on, on, uh, on ec- the ecology, the ecosphere, nature, if you want to just talk very, very roughly, in, and then the cultural superstructure, the cultural political, the world of ideas, stories, blah, blah. When we talk when we talk about the, the, that as well, because they are all unstable as well. But the economy, as the hub have illustrated and drawing on resonances from 1929 and 2008, is very, very, un, very, very unstable. And like like Michael Heseltine, but for different reasons, I would say if I was the Chancellor, I'd be sort of quite frightened. Now this is over an hour now, and we've done a third. Of what we mapped out for the one podcast for part two. So can I suggest we call this part 2A and we'll do part 2B, part 2C, then we'll go on to part three, which is d- deals with the future, because I think otherwise this is a three-hour job.
0: <laughs> there there, is, there really is an awful lot to pick through. And as you said, the list mm. that we've written there, so, I mean, we could we could write pages and pages, just even just on Brexit alone, really, the knock-on effects... Oh, of yeah. the, all the different different things failing I mean, and companies What happens when there's
1: what happens when there's no cardboard? Yeah, I mean, what happens when there's no, there's no packaging? That's right. It's one yeah. of
0: the things what was it yesterday or the day before the uh, the, the packaging industry is in crisis. They're using yeah. the they're word all, it's like crisis again. All so crying. it's like there's no point in having uh, all the eggs that we need being laid in the country if there is no, no packaging egg. to get the eggs to where they need to be sold, and even if there were enough lorry drivers to take the eggs in their nice little packaging or, to where they need if to be the port, sold.
1: if the pork chops are too big for the already existing packaging of the designated size, as dictated by the supermarkets, <sighs> so the pigs are too fat now. I mean, there's a ton of meat on one of these pigs now, you know. Uh-huh. And the farmers can't afford to keep them to, to stay alive.
0: Yeah, it's going to cost them to destroy the pigs yeah. and incinerate them.
1: And it's going to take a long time because there's a shortage of vets because of Brexit, and a shortage of bushes because of Brexit, oh, and God. a shortage a shortage of slaughtering facilities because of the CO two, because of the energy price. I mean, you can map and out. And that's this.
0: just one industry. There's loads yeah. of industries which are yeah. just the same sort of pickle, but just with yeah. slightly different variations. If, if you
1: start, what you do is with with a systems thinking. You tra- you trace the connections and look at the movements. You don't see them as static structures. You realise that everything's shifting, you know, and it's all moving in one direction at the moment, and that is towards chaos. And the government is, is if they weren't so incompetent, maybe they'd come up with some some ideas. I mean, the thing now is it's the Green New Deal, you know, but are they going to do it? You know, they, they're, they're absolutely really, really scared of, of, of money printing, given how much they had to sort of print or mint to, to furlough everybody because well, of Well, that their business
0: model is destroying the environment, probably not, I would say, on the Green no. New Deal. <laughs> and then, then well, as I say,
1: they're, t- they're talking the talk. It's not to say they're going to walk the walk. No, and they, no they're, they're not. They, no. they do not have a good record on doing what they say they're going to do.
0: Oh, God, that, that's a very polite way of putting it. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So looking at the clock, we've been rabbiting on for quite a long time and there's still a lot more to say. So I think we might have to cut this section of all the crises which are happening in our present day into at least a, another podcast, hopefully a bit shorter than this one. So in the next one, uh, just do you want to outline what we want to cover yeah. in the next one?
1: In the next one, I'll talk about uh, the ecological system. Macro system and its various subsystems and its ap- applicability to the UK. We've already mentioned some of it because you, you always do, because the systems are interlocked and entangled, but focusing in on that. And if I can do that fairly succinctly, we'll also, in the same podcast, talk about the cultural level. and the, And that, of course, includes the political level. And again, we've talked about some of it. We've talked about resentment. We've talked about alienation and so forth. And we've talked about civil unrest. But nevertheless, we can focus in on that. Now, I might be able to get those two into, into a single podcast, but I suspect that maybe two, a bit shorter than this, but two other podcasts in part two of our big series. So <laughs> so this, this is uh, part two, subsection A, and there'll be part two, subsection B, Part 2, Subsection C, all of which deal with the present, with a little bit of a focus on the UK, though of course we have to talk about China and the US and Europe as well, because you can't not. If that's agreeable to you i propose that's what we do <laughs>
0: that is agreeable to me because i'm okay. i'm hungry now and i want my dinner
1: <laughs> all right well so, thanks for listening I.
0: <laughs> yeah thank you for listening everyone and coming on this uh, this journey with us through this this very labyrinthine topic
1: thanks.
0: and uh hopefully we will get to do another podcast soon and we will bring you the next exciting installment okay over and out folks and we'll speak to you soon
1: make knowledge great again